Hey, it's a wonderful uh, series we're in right now, looking at the life verses that mean a lot to people in our congregation. And we've been doing this for several weeks, and I've already uh, been blessed through the experience of others who have selected these verses. Our verse today is in Philippians chapter 2. It's actually uh, four verses. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I don't know whether you want to try to guess whose life verse that is, or do you want me to tell you? Okay, Mike, are you going to come up here, Mike? This is the life verse that was chosen by Mike O'Neill Pedersen. Now, you know he is a a fixture in our worship service. We couldn't do it without him. He's either running the mics or the guitar or leading worship. So today he gets to preach. <laughs> Say hey, Mike. Hey. <laughs> um, how, how long has this been your life verse? Um, it, I think it goes back to late college, and this was actually the verse that Kat and I used at our wedding. Um, wow. Because it, it kind of embodies the fact that, especially in a marriage, you can't go about scorekeeping. It's kind of been indicative of my move from a gospel of law to a gospel of grace and putting others ahead of oneself. Wow. So in your marriage, you always humble yourself before her? It is aspirational, oh. not perfectly... <laughs> I, and that's the thing. It's a, it's you know, Christ is a model to us that we yeah. can't perfectly do. But um, when I remember this, it helps me be a little more gracious and putting wow. both Cat or the kids ahead of myself. Are there any, any other life experiences in which this has been important to you? Um, I mean, I think it's also been true with kids. It's like they don't know any better, and <laughs> so it's being able to just uh, okay. look at their needs ahead of my own right so it's putting well putting yourself below yes others the lord circumstances sometimes right yeah and and knowing full well that uh you know i can't control what's happening the outcome of things but all i can do is what i'm called to through okay. the bible okay remember all i can do is what i'm called to that to me is a key phrase and knowing your place and being humble about it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Anything else you want to say? That'll do it. I thought you had questions for me, so I just, well, I just freestyled. Had, I just expressed them. All right. Yeah. Good to go. Thank you, Michael. But I may ask for help throughout here. I'm not sure. That is really a fascinating uh, verse to choose. You know, it. it's... Like not quite aspirational, it's, it, it's reminding yourself not to be too aspirational, I think. 
Let me read it again and stop and talk about a couple of parts. It begins in verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. The same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Well, there's a lot of things he could say about that, but what is he going to focus on in the mind of Christ Jesus? He's focusing on the fact that he emptied himself and got lower and lower and lower. Really interesting that he doesn't talk about Jesus' life here. You could say a lot of things about Jesus' life that show his submission of himself to something bigger, his submission to people, to God's law, his submission. But he talks about something bigger than Jesus' life. He talks about the journey from heaven to earth. He talks about Jesus as preexistent and voluntarily entering humanity. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, Notice the word form. Did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, Mike, did you learn this in the King James Version or what? You learned it in this version. So grasped is the name, the word, right? Do you know what it says in the King James Version? It says doesn't, he didn't think equality with God was a robbery, that it was robbery to try to be equal with God. Can anybody quote it exactly? That he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, people have, you know, wrestled with the meaning of that, but probably it's that word robbery that confuses people. It, does, it just doesn't seem right in the context. And this is a very unusual Greek word. It's not used very often. And so this is a, a, a good translation of it. Thought it not the thing to be grasped or held on to for dear life. Another uh, translation, uh, I think it's the one we have on our board, that was not a thing to be exploited. He didn't think being equal with the father was the definition of who he was. But instead, the contrast in verse 7 is, he emptied himself. Now, you wouldn't believe how important this verse was in church history. There's a doctrine about Christ. It's called the kenosis. And there are some churches that have ceremonies around this. Kenosis means emptying. And the whole question is, who is Jesus? When he emptied himself, does that mean he stopped being divine? Or did he just empty himself of certain prerogatives of divinity? There have been church splits over this word. Okay? In fact, this, this whole passage has been very important in the history of understanding Jesus' nature his human nature and divine. There's a choice involved. He, he voluntarily took this action to empty himself and became obedient. He, being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself 
and became obedient. How obedient? Even to the point of death. And to make it even worse, death on a cross. Even death on a cross. You see there's a climax there. He humbled himself. Took on human flesh. There are some, I put the word emptying, Christ emptying, in Google search and some of the pictures that came up were about the nativity. It was a picture of Jesus in, uh, in, as a baby. That was the emptying. And there were others that focused on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? But Paul goes all the way, emptied himself, became human, became obedient, even became human even to the point of death. And then to make things even more dramatic, it was the death that was suffered by people guilty of the worst kinds of crime, death by execution on the cross. Now, what you don't see if you read some Bibles is that there's a change in literary style and, and Michael kind of bridged into it. Verse 5 is clearly part of a, of a prose style. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. But right after that, and you'll see it in this translation, you see how that next paragraph is written as a poem. That's because all of a sudden the tone changes. And verses four, or verses six through, what is it, 11? Anyway, the next, that whole section is as a rhythm to it and, and a kind of a, 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 there's a memorable quality, poetic phrases. In fact, people who have studied this say there's a radical change between uh, that paragraph in the beginning, this poem, if you will, and then the paragraph at the end. So um, people who have studied this <clears throat> believe this was an ancient statement of faith that Paul was using. Something that people in that church had, and they think it may have been in the form of a, of a, a confession or a chant or a hymn. And so this, this is known as a hymn of Christ. And modern scholarship seems to agree entirely on this. Now when I say modern scholarship, uh, a bridge to modern scholarship for us is in this book. Doesn't mean much to you. It says a hymn of Christ. But the name at the bottom is Ralph P. Martin. Ralph Martin, that's Ralph, and some of you remember him. He uh, came to Fuller Seminary as a professor of New Testament in 1969, and I think immediately after that, or part of that move, was joining this church. And he and Lily raised their kids here, and uh, uh, he was very active in the church. He was uh, worked on the church, helping with forming our church constitution and some other uh, very nuts and bolts thing. 
Lily Martin, his wife, she was a strong woman herself, and she led a women's Bible study, which meant, I think it was Thursdays, wasn't it, Thursday afternoons, for 10 years. And there were people from the community who were not part of this church. So I believe this sanctuary is about half filled for Lily's Bible studies. But Dr. Martin was the interim pastor uh, the year before I came. So they were very much part of our church. Their daughter, Pat, was our administrative assistant, and it was here that she met Lynn Losey, who was our church organist at the time, and who became Dr. Lynn Losey, and uh, is, we still have active relationship with them. But what you may not know about Dr. Martin is this passage, Michael, this passage was pretty much his life. If you go back to 1963, Dr. Martin in England went to King's College London and he finished his PhD there and the subject was the hymn of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. That was his doctoral dissertation. Four years later, he put it into a book which was entitled The Hymn of Christ. That was 1967, he was 42 years old. And then uh, it was republished in 1983, and then it was republished in 1997. Each time it was republished, there was a new preface because other scholars had written things and he wanted to keep right up to date. So you can go this book, there's 360 some pages, and there's a, there's a preface to the first edition, a preface to the second edition, and it's all solid scholarship. I mean, this man was good. He, he wrote other commentaries in, on the New Testament, but he was so focused on this passage that it dominated his life for his whole time of scholarship. I think it's fascinating, and I wanted to um, give, give credit to him. And I want you to know that his conclusion is that this was indeed a hymn, and the language is kind of touched with Hebrew um, um, idioms that indicated maybe it was originally written in Hebrew, by Jewish Christian believers. And it was written because, you know, people couldn't, if a church started in a little community, they didn't have the wherewithal to own a Bible, which would have been the Old Testament books. Um, but they had to have a way to remember the good teachings. And so this would have been a way they could remember the teaching about who Jesus is put into a hymn which they could come together in their worship services and recite or sing or chant. And Dr. Martin believes that's what this was. And Paul used it and applied it. Boy, to me, that made me, I just, my mind, I went back to, uh, to the situation in which this word was given. I'd like to, to take you there. Uh, we have to read the verses before and after to get how Paul 
use this hymns. Let's go to uh, the first five verses of uh, Philippians chapter 2. He's writing, he's writing from prison. This is one of Paul's prison epistles to a congregation that he had helped establish. And he had had interaction with people from that congregation. So he knew a little about what was going on. And so he wrote, uh, If there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, wow, those are all soft words. They're touchy-feely words. They're not hard-nosed theological words. Listen to comfort, consolation, love, tender affection, sympathy. These words are all in verse 1. If any of these things are, are in you guys, make my joy complete. Now Paul is telling, here's how you can make me happy. Now how can you make that guy in prison happy? Here's how. Be of the same mind, having the same love. If you did this at your wedding, Michael, it's really fitting. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Remember last week's sermon, we focused on this as well. This unity of the body was so important to Paul. The more the pressure came to tear it up, the more he affirmed it. So he says, make my joy complete by doing all these things. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Isn't that the opposite of what this passage describes as the mind of Christ? Don't do it from selfish ambition, grasping, grasping, trying to hold on. Or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself better than yourself. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That's how you hang together. Not here's what you can do for me, but what can I do for you? That's the mind of Christ in the body of Christ. Now the early church is beginning to take shape by this time. There's local leadership developing, and I, I'd like to with a few images, uh, show you some ways in which we envision the early churches operating. There was, first of all, uh, witnessing and missionary outreach throughout the Jewish community. That's where it started in every town that Paul went to. And then groups would gather to hear preaching and, and teaching and debating. And then as these groups worked together, leaders began to emerge, a kind of a natural leadership as individuals and families identified as believers in Christ, they developed uh, certain uh, acts of oneness, like the foot washing, the communion at the table of the Lord. And all this made them bound together. Sometimes they were seen as a threat, the outside world, and sometimes they suffered for it. This is Rembrandt's uh, picture of the stoning of Stephen as a Christian witness, and it was where the Apostle Paul was really powerfully moved. And, uh, but more and more, they were settling into being a continuing body who met together 
And as they met together, they had to develop some ground rules. In spite of extreme persecution, the early church was beginning to get traction. And all the, the problems of being a, a body of people who met together regularly were part of their life, just like part of ours. And we go through our own journey of identif identifying the gifts and, and using them in the body, and they went through all of that. And they were settling into an institution, which the church became. And with institutionalism comes a lot of the issues of leadership, sometimes jealousy, hierarchy, accountability, expectations, entitlement, all of that comes to the early church in the first generation of Christianity, just as to us. And writing from prison, Paul could see all of that, but he writes words of calm assurance. And Dr. Martin, after all of his studies, says this hymn and Paul's affirmation based on it is about obedience. Humility is a big word, and that's the first thing that came to my mind. But he says it's about obedience, and as I look through the context around it, that's what I felt as well. <clears throat> so in verse 1, after this introduction in this paragraph, in verse 1 of the hymn, now we read it before, but this is just the first half of the hymn. Okay? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How low can you go? But then there's verse 2 of the hymn. Therefore, verse 9, God exalted him more highly and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name given to Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, there's a lot of sermons in there. But look, Jesus emptied himself to the point of death on a cross, but then the exaltation starts. He doesn't mention the resurrection, but Jesus then is exalted to the point where every knee bows to him. Now, should Mike or the average Christian uh, say, okay, Lord, I'm humbling myself now because I know that you're going to exalt me and you're going to lift me up and make me wonderful. No. And Dr. Martin really analyzed that in his book and said, no, Paul does not imply that. But only that we can know that we're on the winning team because of Christ's exaltation. And after this second verse of the hymn, there's another, uh, there are follow-up instructions. And for understanding, we need to read them as well in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, see the obedience? 
not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work on your own salvation with fear and trembling. What? Okay. Another sermon. For, and for, this is part of that sentence, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wonderful stuff in here. Being a witness for him. What is it to be a witness for him? And I, there's a phrase in here that I heard when I was a young kid. Holding forth the word of life in this next section. Um, here's, here's how I, I kind of pictured it. Uh, holding forth the word of life, I was taught, was telling people about the Bible and about what God said in the Bible. However, if you read this passage in the context, holding forth the word of life is living this way. Look in verse 14. Do all things without murmuring and arguing. That's what Mike learned to do when Cat says move. <laughs> do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world by being as humble as you can be, by taking it when you feel like giving it. That's how you shine like stars in the world, holding forth the word of life. Okay? You do it not by preaching at people, but by living in front of people. By living this giving, humbling, sacrificial way. That really strikes people. So, the way up is down, that's not really the message here. The way down is down, and, and you've got to stay down. But Christ is up, and that shows you've made the right decision. What's your job in the world? What is your job? Well, we talked last week about gifts. But, you know, gifts can go to your head. So your job is to have a gift and not know it. Your job is to have a gift and say, oh, it's nothing, and mean that. Your gift, your job is to have a gift and put it in submission to others, to the congregation. So I, I got to thinking about Dr. Martin um, and I went back to him at the end, thinking, what, what did this mean in his life? And I thought, here's a, a great man. You're going to look up on Wikipedia, find out all that he did. He was a professor at Fuller, but he was world-renowned. But that's who he was. He was just a guy. He was just a humble person. And I felt intimidated as a pastor. I've jokingly said I couldn't preach on the New Testament because he had New Testament fresh. He never made me feel that way. Never did. And whatever your gift is, keep in mind the admonition of Paul. 
Let this mind be in you that was in Christ. The emptying, the giving, the offering, the submission, the obedience. And Dr. Martin says, this book is an encouragement, or this hymn is an encouragement to us to obey the obedient one. And because he was obedient, we have his life in us. Thank you, dear Lord, for the words and the truth that we've seen in our lives and in the congregational life by your grace. We thank you, Lord, and we pray that you will make us obedient as Jesus Christ was obedient to the high calling that he had, which took him all the way down to the depths of human experience and to the cross itself. In Jesus' name, amen.